You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. A U.S. executive order outlines U.S. and EU data-sharing privacy safeguards. CISA, NSA, and the FBI list the top vulnerabilities currently being exploited by China. A look at election security and credit risk to U.S. states. COVID-19-themed social engineering continues. Robert M. Lee from Dragos on securing the food and beverage industry. Carol Terrio interviews Joel Hollenbeck from Checkpoint Software on threat actors fishing school board meetings. And notes from the hybrid war, Hillnet and U.S. state government sites, the prospects of deterrence in cyberspace, and finally, maybe the most motivated draft evaders in military history. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary. For Friday, October 7th, 2022. An executive order signed this morning by U.S. President Biden moves the U.S. and the EU closer to agreement on data privacy standards. It specifies the safeguards the U.S. undertakes to put in place pursuant to the agreement reached with the European Union in March of this year. The executive order specifically addresses European concerns about U.S. signals intelligence and other intelligence activities. It reassures the EU that the U.S. will conduct SIGINT only in pursuit of defined national security objectives and that U.S. SIGINT will be conducted with due respect for the privacy of individuals, whatever their citizenship. It also undertakes to establish safeguards and mechanisms to resolve any concerns or disputes over data handling and compliance. NSA, CISA, and the FBI have issued a joint advisory on the top vulnerabilities being targeted by Chinese state-sponsored threat actors. The full list of vulnerabilities, including recommended mitigations, can be found in the report, Most of the CVEs can be solved by applying patches or updating to the latest version, and the alert also offers advice on configuring certain products to mitigate risks. It's working-level advice, 
It won't hold the interest of political scientists and international relations experts interested in Beijing's goals, motives, and policies, but there's more than enough there to keep CISOs, SOCs, IT personnel, and the C-suites and boards they work for informed and busy. Reading it is time well spent. Moody's Investor Service released a report detailing election risks as they relate to cyber risk. The service discusses how local governments are more exposed to credit risks as there's a shift from core services to election security and calls on state and federal funding to mitigate risk. National security officials are preparing for increased risk of cyber attacks and influence from threat actors who seek to erode confidence in election infrastructure in the U.S., Election interference can cause hindrances in policymaking, as focuses can be on political and social tensions and disrupting institutions' stability. Differences in voting technologies across the country, as there's no central election management system, change and affect cyber risk and exposure. Wide-scale interference at the federal level won't happen due to a lack of centralized election management, but local and state governments remain the focus of risk. Election-related cyber attacks would also be bad for local governments as well, because that would require a shift from costs only allotted to operate the elections and not for a whole cyber response. So that would be a negative financial move. Proofpoint has released research detailing how threat actors took advantage of the COVID-19 pandemic for personal gain. The report highlights how threat actors are creatures of opportunity, acting when a threat is of relevance to their audience. In this case, threat actors could cast a wide net as COVID-19 was relevant to the entire world. It was noted that the pandemic also provided a good background for any type of cybercrime. The pandemic was also a big change in both personal and business-related matters, and so social engineering tactics were found to target both. CyberScoop has an update on how U.S. states, particularly Colorado, Kentucky, and Mississippi, are recovering from the DDoS attacks that took some sites offline briefly this Wednesday. The incidents seem, for the most part, to have been quickly contained, but that hasn't inhibited KillNet, in an Osmandian mood, from calling its action USA Offline. Some of the group's website defacements have displayed the Statue of Liberty in front of a mushroom cloud, the scene emblazoned with the motto, F NATO. We're a family show, so it, they didn't really just say F, but you get the picture. It's low-grade vandalism. Killnet is generally held to be a criminal group closely aligned with Russian government interests. The Five Eyes Joint Advisory of April 20th, 2020, assessed them as much, stating, According to open-source reporting, Killnet released a video pledging support to Russia— Killnet claimed credit for carrying out a DDoS attack against a U.S. airport in March 2022 in response to U.S. material support for Ukraine. As a purely criminal group, Killnet would have to be assessed as a fizzle. They're unlikely to be making a living from DDoS and website defacements. But their operations make sense if they're functioning as an auxiliary of Russian intelligence services. Ambassador-at-Large for Cyberspace and Digital Policy, Nate Fick, the first official to hold the new U.S. State Department post, was sworn in on October 4th. Yesterday, he addressed journalists on, among other matters, the current state of Russian cyber operations in the war against Ukraine. He advocated extending deterrence across the cyber domain, 
and is encouraged by the NATO unity he sees in this respect. He thinks deterrence seems to have inhibited Russian cyber attacks outside Ukraine. With Ukraine itself, he credited effective defense and close public-private cooperation with limiting the damage of Russian cyber ops. The idea of extending deterrence into the cyber domain is an important one across uh, many facets of American foreign policy, including Russia's uh, war in Ukraine. I, I think that the, uh, the, the degree of unity of purpose across the NATO alliance that we're seeing is encouraging. Cyber deterrence is, is a part of that. And to some extent, it's working, right? We, we, we haven't seen a ton of, uh, of lateral escalation using cyber means outside Ukraine. Uh, by the Russians. Inside Ukraine uh, is, is um, one, of, one of the interesting success stories of you know, early days is, is the effectiveness of public-private partnerships on the ground with software vendors that have, in some cases, hundreds of millions of, of systems deployed in Ukraine and the feedback loop between them and the U.S. government on things like threat intelligence sharing and then pushing patches out to systems. I, I lived this on the other side of the table in the private sector for a long time. Uh, and I'm not accustomed to seeing it work as smoothly and quickly as it is right now. That's Ambassador-at-Large for Cyberspace and Digital Policy, Nate Fick. And finally, if you'll permit us a moment to talk about the kinetic world, Russia's partial mobilization has proved widely unpopular with the men whom it seeks to sweep back into the ranks. Estimates of the number who fled the country range from a low of 300,000 to a high of 700,000, We, of course, don't know the true figure, probably no one does, but it's certainly more than the Kremlin would wish. Two reluctant soldiers deserve some kind of recognition, however. They turned up at a beach on St. Lawrence Island, Alaska, after crossing the Bering Strait in a small boat, and they asked for, and received, asylum in the U.S. It's not clear how far they traveled across one of the nastiest stretches of water on the planet— but it's at least 36 miles from Siberia's Chukotka Peninsula. The Telegraph says they may have traveled about 300 miles in their crossing to Alaska. That's some motivated boating. Oh, and we're sure everyone is sending appropriate thoughts in the direction of President Putin on the occasion of his 70th birthday. We hear the celebrations have been muted. Up after the break, Robert M. Lee from Dragos on securing the food and beverage industry. Carol Terrio interviews Joel Hollenbeck from Checkpoint Software on threat actors fishing school board meetings. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps. 
keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. There have been recent reports of threat actors fishing school board meetings. Our UK correspondent, Carol Terrio, spoke with Joel Hollenbeck from Checkpoint Software on the issue. She files this report. So today we are chatting with Joel Hollenbeck. He is head of engineering at Checkpoint, and we are talking about how local community and school board meetings have yet another threat vector to watch out for. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Joel. Yeah, thank you for having me this morning, Carol. Maybe we could start by uh, you setting the scene for us. What's, what's been going on out there? In our threat research efforts around email uh, phishing attempts, explicitly we discovered, you know, a new uh, methodology that the threat actors are using. The latest one that we're seeing is that they're taking advantage of the uh, recent interest in school board meetings, right? Uh, folks are getting more involved in local politics, specifically around school board meetings. This has led in from the, you know, the lead up to the pandemic and the response to COVID. Um, but because of the interest in that, the threat actors are following there. And they are attempting to fish people that are interested in these meetings by sending specifically crafted invitations um, that have malicious intent. And they're, they're having great success in doing so. So I, maybe I want to join my local school board and I've, uh, I've been looking out to be for an invitation to get on there. Maybe I've been waiting for that. And what happens? So I get a kind of spoofed email type thing? Yeah, that's precisely what happens. The, the threat actors in this case are sending out spoofed emails, um, again, that have malicious attachments involved in them. Much like many of the other spoofing attempts or brand impersonation attempts that we see by the threat actors out there using this you know, human hacking approach. They're attempting to fool the viewer of that email or that message or that communication into believing that it comes from authoritative, legitimate uh, source. In doing so, you know, they're attempting to get under your risk radar, right? They're trying, you know, you trust it for a second because it looks legitimate. Therefore, I don't have to have my guard up when I click a link or I open up attachment. This is coming from the school bar, right? So... 
I'm going to open this up. Yeah. So listeners here um, now are forewarned, right? And in this case, I'm guessing forewarned is forearmed. Uh, is there anything that people can do to um, prevent becoming a victim of one of these? How do you watch out for it? Yeah, well, there's a number of things. I mean, first of all, you advise everybody to have an extremely healthy level of skepticism, if not downright cynicism when it comes to cybersecurity <laughs> issues. Make sure that you know who it is that you're talking to. Make sure that somebody else doesn't have control of the account. Avoid clicking on links and opening up attachments. Like, for example, if you, you know, maybe you, you know, we're all human, right? We do have needs, right? We're going to do some shopping for Valentine's Day. Well, don't click on the link for, you know, the, the Build-A-Bear link that you may have gotten in email. Instead, you know, go to your, your search engine and, and use one of the links there because a link that you get via email, even though you may believe it's from that legitimate source or even from a friend, doesn't mean that that link isn't going to be malicious. So I think that going directly to the source, you know, reduces some of that risk. And the, the other part of it is, you know, not just being skeptical and, you know, using methodologies to avoid opening up these things that are potentially malicious. The more we're individually educated about the, the means and methods that the threat actors use, the better prepared we are and the less skeptical we have to be. And it turns more into education. You could be aware of the vectors that they use and the techniques that they use and how they roll through these like a Rolodex and they constantly mix and match them and use the same tools over and over again and realize that regardless of how they're doing it, you know, they're going after something that's going to create an emotional response, something that's going to, um, you know, cause the, the viewer of this message or the receiver of this message to have some sort of an urgent response to it. And that's how they get under, you know, the radar. They get to the user and they get them to do something that just is a brief second where they, you know, they, they feel like they have to do something urgently or it's emotional. And that it reduces your, your logic trade in your brain. You click on that link, you open up that attachment and they got you. Sage advice. This was Joel Hollenbeck, head of engineering at Checkpoint. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. And this was Carol Terrio for the CyberWire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Rob, it's always great to welcome you back to the show. Uh, it strikes me that perhaps uh, an area of critical infrastructure that doesn't get some of the attention of uh, what I would call the more flashy things is uh, food and beverage security, which, of course, is critical to all of our survival. What is the status of, of things when it comes to food and beverage? So uh, when we look at manufacturing at right, large to include food and beverage manufacturing, I would say that at one point in time, uh, there was a lot of thought process put into those companies and the security teams did good with whatever they had. I'm not saying, I mean, by any measure, manufacturing and food and beverage is not exactly at the top of spend and similar for, for global community. So let's not try to sugarcoat it, but, but those teams busted their tails to do what they could, which usually had a lot to do with segmentation, firewalling things off, getting to that segmentation. However, which, you know, honestly is where a lot of industrial was. However, manufacturing is, 
especially food and beverage, more so than most industries, digitized earlier. So they started taking advantage of that industry 4.0, digital transformation, call it whatever buzzword you want. They started taking advantage of that journey earlier than like a big electric company or similar. And so you started to see remote connectivity and digital assets and similar a lot more in those environments. What all that means is we massively increased the risk with digitization and connectivity at a time that adversaries were targeting industrial systems specifically without adapting the actual security portfolio much beyond segmentation, maybe some targeted patching. And so what's happening is most food and beverage companies at a board level are becoming hyper aware of this. I see board members and CEOs that are better informed on the cyber risk to manufacturing than some of the CIOs and CISOs I sit down with. Like it's hmm. it's fast in terms of its development. And the reason for that is there's a significant number of incidents that are happening because of that digitization and connectivity. And in every single one of the cases, the top two findings is number one, the executives have a much rosier view of their OT security program than reality. And number two is they didn't actually have the data collection and tooling deployed in the first place to actually get to root cause analysis, the data that they would need for the incident or questions they would have, regulatory questions, et cetera. So their, their board members are sitting on other companies' boards that are going through these incidents and all the problems that come with them, a lot more than is being discussed publicly, and they're driving those discussions on the other boards they sit on. That's kind of what's happening. And as a result, we're starting to see a lot of discussions about, cool, how do we do OT security? How do we get in those environments, et cetera? But there's still a lot of legacy challenges, and it's not a technology challenge. Usually it's um, a cultural challenge where maybe the manufacturing, the way that they do it is each plant has their own budget and uh, any security expenditures comes out of that budget, including the bonus structure that's going to go to your plant manager. And so you have some of these incentives that are misaligned with what you're trying to accomplish as a corporate risk and corporate governance. So a lot of those food and ma beverage manufacturers are starting to have conversations about how do we centralize the budget for that security, even if the implementation is local, so that we can incentivize the right risk reduction across our company? And how do we get more insights in the challenges that we're facing other than board members sitting on one board talking to another board? What realistically are, are, are the perils that, that these folks face here? I mean, obviously, you know, you got things like ransomware, shutting down production lines. Are there risks of, you know, bad food being sent out, people, health, safety issues? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's a broad range of things that can happen, but I usually like to focus the conversation on what things have happened, mm. right? I don't want to, well, one day these three state actors could team up and play volleyball and come after you. And it's like, well, that's not <laughs> happening. Let's dial down the hype. Right. You know, I, I'm glad that there's good research about what could happen. But when you're at the place that we are in the community, let's focus on what has happened, cover down the knowns, then we can get to that, right? And so on those knowns, if you will, the number one for that industry for sure is ransomware. Um, it's happening way more often uh, than as the public. I still see people on social media and stuff every now and then like, we did it, guys. We like lowered ransomware with all these changes. And I'm like, no, people just stopped talking to you. Hmm. Like, it's still still pretty, pretty hot out there. That's the number one. But I would say on that, the realization that it doesn't have to go through IT is one that is the big realization for them. Um, there's a lot of legacy mindsets around, oh, well, here's our ERP or kind of the SAP system for scheduling. Yeah, if it gets hit, we go down. And of course, 
uh, you know, our IT network goes down and we, we lose the ability to sell and do the production. And it's like, well, not only that, though, but you also have shared AD infrastructure, Active Directory now from IT to OT, and that's getting compromised and populating like a highway of death down into OT. Or you have your digitization, which is not only cloud access, but integrators and OEMs, and they're getting hit directly and hitting directly into the OT. And so the idea that ransomware is important in manufacturing is a no kidding kind of statement. But ransomware specific and starting in OT is the one that they're starting to grapple with and understand. The second thing we see quite a bit of is intellectual property theft um, from state adversaries, but it's not intellectual property theft on things like recipes. It's not like, hey, what's the secret sauce of that new cereal? Like right. That's not the discussion. The discussion about intellectual property theft in, in industrial usually, it can be recipes, but usually it's how did you integrate an environment? How did you build this environment? What vendors did you choose? What physical parameters did you put in place? What control and instrumentation did you do so that you could take cheap quality inputs and make high quality repeatable outputs? The industrial espionage is almost the ICS itself, not some recipe. And then the third thing we see quite a bit of um, is mostly around like accidents and things happening, uh, unintentional issues um, or random malware stuff. But what it is, is people don't have the visibility in their environment to know how things are configured. And this, the growing industrial automation complexity in these environments is making it where individual engineers and operators can't really troubleshoot things as well anymore or get to root cause analysis. Mm. So some of the security tools and things like visibility network monitoring are providing as much resilience value as they are security value, which is a really good conversation. The, the fourth that we don't see a lot of, but I am worried about is the one you hit on. We have seen safety-related targeting attacks. We've seen those incidents. I, I cannot stand in front of you and say that I've seen it in a way that is something that I think was intentional in mm. food and beverage. Um, but I am worried about once we get through those known scenarios, that is immediately where I'd focus people because of the safety impact. And there's a lot of these producers that it's not just things like cereal, whatever. Like There's beverage producers that you may know for certain soda products that actually make a lot of milk in certain countries or, or other things that are more perishable and important to the local ecosystem. And there's a lot of safety concern around the production of those facilities. All right. Well, interesting insights as always. Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Jen Miller Osborne from Palo Alto Networks Unit 42. We're discussing their recent work, 
Russian APT-29 hackers use online storage services Dropbox and Google Drive. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.